Welcome to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast for fans who aren't ready to let go and newcomers to this series who are ready to jump in. I'm Drew Shulman. And I'm Marvi Guru. In this episode, we're diving into Supernatural Season 5 Finale, Episode 22, Swan Song. Let's get this show on the road. This feels momentous. Oh, I can't believe we're here. When we started, we were like, well, if we can make it through the first five seasons, you know, like that was kind of like the big milestone at the time. It's so many little things. Like it feels like a true like mile marker. I know it was a theme a few weeks ago, but like today really feels like a momentous occasion. And not for nothing, right? Because this is the season five finale. And it's also the finale of the five season run of Eric Kripke as the showrunner. And we're going to be referring to this as the Kripke era, these five seasons. And even just for us, this is the like one third mark of the series. That means we have we have done a third of this show. We have done a third of our proposed project. Yeah, and it took us about two years. So yeah, we've got four more years of this. <laughs> a whole presidential term. Let's get started with the recap. Count me down. Three, two, one, go. We jump right into it. A few goodbyes, a few sad moments, a few gallons of blood, and Sam and Dean walk up to Lucifer to say hello, and Lucifer's all like, yeah, I know your plan, I'll give you a shot, and it doesn't work. Lucifer gets Sam, Dean gets nothing, they run off, they try to figure out what to do next, they realize there isn't much to do, they reach out to Chuck, oh, Dean at least reached out to Chuck, so he's the only one who thinks there's anything left to do, and decides to interrupt the grand finale battle. And he does. He rolls into the cemetery with Baby and has this amazing confrontation that Bobby and Cash show up to through his just emotional readiness and availability to Sam is able to allow Sam a moment of freedom to get out of Lucifer's control and eventually throw himself and Michael into the pit with the rings. And I mean, we find out that Dean has to just go on living without Sam. And, you know, Cass gets his powers back. God brings him back one more time. And now he's off to heaven to go try to deal with things. And Bobby's okay. And Dean's okay. And Dean goes back and lives a happy life with Lisa and presumably Ben. And then we find out that Chuck was more than all of this. And I presume might actually be God. We still don't know 100% for sure. And then Sam is back at the very end time. There you go. That's the Kripke era. Oh, so again, for anyone who doesn't know, we watched this episode live with some of our uh, our listeners and just, <laughs> I was an emotional mess. <laughs> it, it feels really like the culmination of everything that has happened over the last five seasons. And we're we're starting to see, even from the very beginning, right, all of the montages that we're seeing. It's just, it's very emotional, frankly. Watching this show in the past, and even the first time around, I had never gotten really emotional watching the season five finale. But this time around, with the added context of like looking so deeply into the text, and also like the context of us having been doing this for a whole two plus years at this point, it just it just felt like a lot. Like it was definitely a lot, especially this week that is full of like self-discovery for me it's just it's a lot 
it was an emotional day watching this. It was emotional rewatching. It was emotional writing the notes, and I'm emotional even now just talking about it. So, why don't we head into the long game and uh, see what we can glean from this episode that may be relevant to the next four years? The name of the first person who owned the Impala, Sal Moriarty, is actually a direct homage to Dean Moriarty and Sal Paradise, who are two characters from Jack Kerouac's novel, On the Road. And as a side note, I know that we've mentioned this before, but we're always going to be pushing this little fact when we can, but the real-life person who inspired Dean Moriarty's character, his name was Neil Cassidy, and he was bisexual. That's a nice little homage, nice little touch. We get our last Impala talk between the brothers of season five. I know Sam is back, but I also know Sam is back for the rest of the series. So it's not like it's a shocker. There's only so much that I can kind of play with here, right? Like, you know that he's back, so. Like, at this point, I know that by the end of season 15, we have Sam, Dean, and Cass. More people? Other people? I don't know, but I know those three, so. Devils in Detroit? I mean, we always knew since season four, uh, the end, that Sam was going to say yes to Lucifer in Detroit, and that does come to pass. When Bobby was, like, listing all, like, the possible signs, and Dean's just like, no, it's Detroit, I know it. And it's just like, ugh, hang in my heart. This is the first time that Sam asks Dean not to bring him back? I think I kind of predicted this last time we talked about this, was the idea that, like, this had to be final, and this isn't the kind of thing you can really save him from. You kind of saw it coming, but again, like I like that they addressed it the way they did. And I think that it was an important thing to kind of have said like explicitly in order to explain Dean's choices later on also. Sam also asks Dean not to watch him drink the demon blood, which I think is is showing like that he still feels like really ashamed of that. I understand that and I, I definitely see it that way too. But I also think it's like, you know, those last moments you kind of want to build like as much as you can't really go build happy memories of Sam before this whole thing happens in case it goes wrong, which, surprise, it does. You know, he'd rather leave his brother with an image of him that isn't him guzzling gallons of blood. Exactly. Like, it's just a whole thing there. Lucifer runs cold, not hot, just like in Dante's Inferno. Oh, I love this detail. It's one of those small things of just, like... Any time mythology brings up, like, hell being cold versus being hot, I always... Yes, it's the Dante Inferno, I think, is the one that uh, popularized. I don't know if it's the origins of it. Like, I'd be curious to know if there's any stories before that that do it. I honestly have no idea, but uh, I, I just love how much they've been drawing from from Dante, actually. We also find out that Azazel planted a bunch of demons into Sam's life at different times of his life to kind of like steer him in the direction of saying yes to Lucifer. I mean, we knew about Brady, but like now we know about a bunch more. The chat was going crazy over the scene and I'm like, I don't get it. It's just a bunch of random people. Is it going to be like just here's some people to indiscriminately kill because I'm a bad person? And then the reveal of like, oh, no, it wasn't just Brady. It was all of them. They were all possessed by demons. And I was using them all to lure you to this moment because I'm that fucking evil. And just like, damn. I mean, it goes to show how little control Sam has had over his life, which we'll be talking about a little bit more later. But for now, for shits and giggles, I'm just going to highlight the fact that there's like a shot of a windmill in an episode where Cass both dies and comes back to life. You pointed this out before. I don't know the connection to windmills. I'm sure it'll become very apparent in a few seasons, but I'm looking forward to learning the secrets. Chuck says, and I quote, Endings are hard. 
Any chapped ass monkey with a keyboard can poop out a beginning, but endings are impossible. You try to tie up every loose end, but you never can. The fans are always going to bitch, there's always going to be holes, and since it's the ending, it's all supposed to add up to something. I'm telling you, they're a raging pain in the ass. No doubt, endings are hard. But then again, nothing ever really ends, does it? <sighs> I'm just going to leave it at that. The episode ends with Bobby back on the hunter grind, Cass in heaven, Dean with Lisa, and Sam on the streets stalking Dean somehow. Again, questions are raised. We'll get into it. And Chuck disappears, I suppose. Listeners, go back. Listen to the episode where we introduce Chuck for the first time, Monster at the End of this book. And I think I half-acidly joke about like, oh, maybe Chuck's the monster at the end and he's secretly God. And I swear I hate when I was right. And I think I said something like, huh, wouldn't that be interesting? Oh, you, <laughs> you never saw it. You, you. I feel like if you were to go back to some of those episodes yourself <laughs> and listen back to them, you would just be astounded at the number of things that have been said that have just like completely been missed. Part of me wants to do it and part of me would be so bad at myself. So I don't think I could. It's not your fault. You know what I mean? Like it's it's part of the narrative. It's part of like being like surprised by the narrative, right? Like you can't know what you don't know. You can't predict what's actually going to happen. I feel like I love the inside joke that happens between like the people who know and and like the things that I say. And I I I now I purposely put them in because I know what reaction it's going to get and I just I love it. <laughs> I'm so sorry, but I love it. And it's never, it's never at your expense also. I just want to highlight that. Like, it's never like, I'm laughing at you because you don't know. It's, it's always like, yeah, it's never that. It's like a very specific type of irony in the sense of like, we know and he doesn't. And the fact that he doesn't know that we know is what makes it funny. And it's not me not knowing. It's the knowing, it's the me not knowing that I don't know, <laughs> which is like a weird two levels <laughs> removed, but it works so well. Anyways. Today, our theme is self-actualization. So when we talk about self-actualization, like we usually refer to Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which is probably something that most people have heard about. So you think about like a, a little a pyramid at the bottom, you've got your physiological needs, uh, which include like food, water, uh, breathing, etc., like that kind of stuff, sleep. And then you've got a little bit higher safety, like making sure that you have like resources, employment, family, a home. Then you've got love and belonging uh, with friendship, family, intimacy. Then you've got esteem with like self-esteem, confidence, achievement. And then at the very top of the pyramid, you've got self-actualization, which includes like morality, creativity, spontaneity, problem solving, etc. For the purposes of today, I'm just going to explain self-actualization through the lens of another model, which... Sorry to do that, but I just, I wanted to make it clear so that people who know Maslow's hierarchy of needs aren't like, well, that's not what that is. Like, I know, but I'm choosing to define it a little bit differently. So I'm going to define it through transformative learning, which is an educational model by Mesereau, similar, but different person, similar name, different person, where a person is faced with like a destabilizing situation or what's called or, or what's called in the model like a discontent or a disorienting dilemma. And that situation appears either like in their life or like in an educational setting 
where they do not have the skill set to resolve or to cope with this situation. And basically, as they navigate through the situation, they end up developing the skills and coping mechanisms that like they would have needed from the get-go. And so once they manage to resolve the situation or to adapt to their new situation or to integrate a new perspective into their life, that's when they're transformed. And that's really that moment of integrating that new perspective that we're looking at as self-actualization here in this episode. Interesting. I, I really like that perspective on it. That really weirdly lines up better with the way I've always kind of pictured self-actualization because it was something always about the hierarchy of needs for Maslow that kind of like felt like something was missing. Like self-actualization feels like a weird intangibleness that you can never really claim you've achieved. It sort of just like becomes apparent. And if you truly are self-actualizing, you don't need to be aware of it. Yeah, I'm following. And I think in the second model, the, the transformative one, you don't necessarily need to explicitly put words on it that you are you are taking something and adapting and working it into your your workflow to get past something it just happens like and i think that's what we see mostly with with all the examples i have at least this week i literally had a conversation about transformative learning today with with a student like her reaction to hearing about transformative learning as a model, she was like, yeah, but everybody does that. And I'm like, yeah, absolutely. Everybody does that. You're right. And like for children, school, life, everything is a transformative experience, right? And then for adults, like we're catapulted into situations or into like into moments of our lives where like we don't, that's never happened to us. So like that happens when we go through illness or when we go through unemployment or like when we go through marriage for the first time. So like these big moments, these big life moments become transformative because we develop new skills and acquire new perspectives for our lives. So let's have a look at our characters and how they're self-actualizing this week. Sure. You want to start us off with Cass? So I feel like Cass has really two big moments that I think show who he's become over the last two seasons that we've known him. And the first is when like he Molotov's Michael. And the second is his decision to go back to heaven. And I quote, because it seems like the right thing to do. We're going to get back to that. And in both of these moments, I think that we're seeing just like how much his proximity to the Winchesters and Dean particularly has affected his behavior. Like we're seeing the extent to which Dean has changed him. Now, Cass cares about things that he didn't used to care about before Dean, and now he cares about them because Dean cares about them. Like, he literally gave his life for Dean to be able to have five minutes with Sam. I think this episode does something very special for Cass, in that we kind of get a weird journey for him. So, I mean, aside from his awful attempt at being comforting at the beginning, which are hilarious... But like you said, his real big moment here is the, the the holy fire Molotov, which I think is just a magical sentence. It feels like a very peak evolutionary moment for Cass in that he's taking action that is so against his nature, that is so against the nature he was taught that he should be having. So not his nature, but the nature he, that was enforced on him. And, and living in a moment, he he really is, I feel like, reaching a new point in his life where he is no longer worried about consequences or who he's upsetting or who he's worrying he has found what he needs to do what he needs to do in order to do the right thing on a larger scale and does it and while it does play for quite a funny moment and it does play for like 
just a heroic moment that ultimately ends with his demise. You were right, though. It is really just him realizing what he can do, what needs to be done in that moment. And for the betterment of more than just himself is that five minutes that he can give Dean with Sam. I think what really makes it harsh, though, is the fact that he ends this week almost by reverting away from that evolution. You know, it feels a bit like an abusive relationship while he knows it's bad when he's out as soon as, in this case, God gives him a new power, new toys, and promises to never mess up again, and he just goes running back to his duties. Yes, he's worried about heaven with no leadership and the chaos, but the cast from earlier this episode who firebomb Michael would never be that this worried so much so that he'd abandon Dean in a moment like this where Dean has just lost so much. I don't see it this way because I'm not sure that I see this moment as him abandoning Dean, although I'm sure that Dean sees it that way. I'm seeing it more as him living up to the standards that Dean has set for himself and adopting those standards. Because the way that Cass says, like, it seems like the right thing to do, like, he doesn't seem entirely convinced. Like, there's a price to pay for doing the right thing, and in this case, it's his relationship with Dean, in the same kind of way that Dean sacrificed his own relationship with Sam in order to save the world. And that's kind of the crux of it all, right? Like, Cass cares about the whole world now because of Dean. And if Heaven's not doing well, then the rest of the world probably isn't going to be doing so hot either. Cass is taking on this burden, and it shows us just how much of Dean's values he's integrated. So I do see this as a moment of self-actualization, in a way. Damn, though, that is so right. Dean would see it as abandonment, and I think that this episode, because it's the first this episode is so Dean-focused. Like, this whole finale feels like a dean focus, and that actually brings me to another realization I had, which we'll get to in a bit, about Dean and Chuck. I think I was so in that moment, because, again, it, I think it was very raw and very fresh, that I was so on Dean's side, I was so in Dean's shoes, that Cass leaving, I just saw the abandonment. You're right, that this is entirely the Dean move. This is Cass giving up the one thing he loves to go do what seems to be right, air quotes here, because he feels like he has to. Right. And I think that this is like super important what you're saying here, because the first time I watched it, I definitely felt the abandonment too, because that's what happens to Dean, right? Like the moment he's like, oh, you really suck at goodbyes, which is like another way for saying like, you could have said goodbye. You didn't even say goodbye. So like that's, that abandonment is definitely felt, but like, I think that this is also like the cast taking on the Winchester curse or the Dean Winchester curse of like the, I need to do the right thing, the righteous man, right? At whatever the price. And I think in Cass is willing to pay that price, even if it's like the thing he loves the most, just like Dean just did. Making the parallels to, you know, God and John, where it sort of feels like, oh, God came back and did something good. Clearly everything's right again. I got to go back into his good graces. But it, you're, you're right. This doesn't seem like, A, I'm doing this for him. I'm doing this because for, for me and for the betterment of the world. It's just a coincidence that he brought me back. I, I never really saw it as as Cass doing this for, for God. I always saw this as Cass doing this for Dean. Damn. If we can talk about Dean for a second. Or a lot. <laughs> Oh, Dean, truly. Oh, he becomes our main character this week as we kind of lose Sam to lose for real early. 
And when it comes to self-actualization, I feel like there's two levels. Uh, the level where we think we've hit it and the level where we know we've hit it. Uh, you know, Dean reaches the point where he's ready to face Lucifer alongside his brother and is ready for whatever comes. But like deep down, he's clearly worried and clearly banking on this working, even though he's fully aware it might not. And you can so clearly see how extremely freaked out he gets when Lucifer mentions the rings and knowing their plan. Like there is something in Dean's face there that just like he is broken by this. Because as soon as he realizes that Lucifer knows what's going on, he's like, oh, we've lost. This, this is like, we had one chance. It was a surprise. And we don't have that now. Fuck. Yeah, I know. It's awful. I hate it. <laughs> I hate everything about it. But again, we then have another moment, a very similar moment of Dean rolling up to Lucifer, uh, this time with his longest time partner, Baby. And they roll into the cemetery, and at this moment, Dean is whole, he is his truest self, and he knows this is it. You know, unlike the first encounter with Lucifer, where there was, like, a chance things could go wrong, or, you know, hopefully we can all, we can all hope into the power of friendship, things will go right, and, you know, we might get through. This time, it's truly a last stand, and I think he is very aware of this. And this time, it doesn't feel like the classic Dean, like, ready to toss away his life just to, like, save the world. No, this time it's Dean being so himself, going in and doing this one thing he knows he can do, and that is to be a good brother and be there for Sam. Yeah, I I, I mean, I completely agree with both of these moments and like, especially with them being the highlight of Dean's like self-actualization in this episode and in this like season and era finale. You've described them super well, so I, I, I sort of want to dig a little bit into, like, why these moments are so important to him. And, like, his entire life, he's basically been brainwashed to think that, like, his only purpose in life is to protect his brother. We've learned that he would get severely punished by John if he would, like, as much as, you know, appear to be deviating from that. So when he's faced with this, like, really, again, like, destabilizing dilemma, which is, as Bobby so beautifully put it earlier, like, to lose the battle or the war or to lose his brother, um, the choice he has to make just doesn't make sense to him. And, and I think the line of dialogue that really shows this transformation in him is, like, at the very beginning of the episode when he says, like, um, it's not on me to let you do anything. You're a grown, well, overgrown man. If this is what you want, I'll back your play. And he continues with, I mean, truth is, you know, watching out for you, it's kind of been my job, you know, but more than that, it's kind of who I am. <sighs> You're not a kid anymore, Sam, and I can't keep treating you like one. Maybe I got to grow up a little too. And I feel like in that moment... All the control that like he's exerted on Sam or over Sam, like which he inherited from John is like lifted. Like he's not, he's not Sam's protector anymore. He's his equal. And I don't know why I'm so emotional tonight about this, but I really am. <laughs> the re-realization you brought to me with Cass in the previous uh, dialogue reflects here as well. That while Dean kind of always felt trapped in this role of the big brother who had to protect his little brother because it's what was forced upon him. It's in this moment that he realizes that he's doing it because he truly loves his brother and because he wants to be doing it, not because he was meant to do it. 
that allows him to self-actualize and be the brother that he always needed to be. That he wanted to be, not needed, right? I think that's like the real distinction here. And, and so this is why I think it's also really important to talk about his choice to go and meet Lisa, because like this was Sam's last wish, but I'm not sure that it actually contributes to Dean's transformation. And and this might be an unpopular opinion, but it's something that I wonder. Like, I'm not 100% sure how much of that is really his choice versus like just listening to Sam. And I think that for Dean to truly self-actualize, like he really needs to make his own choices and to think about the life that he wants and the life that he wants to build for himself. And I know that he said like in 99 Problems that when he imagines himself happy, it's with Lisa and Ben, but I'm just not sure how much of that was him like just taking refuge in the idea of them versus him actually wanting that life. The, the, the way this episode ends with like very much like being at the dinner table, like living the the white picket fence life that he never truly wanted or never really exclaimed he wanted. Uh, although we've kind of alluded to it maybe being there deep down, but almost seems more like this is what Sam wanted in his final wish was me to like leave the game and go to a normal white picket fence life. Let me do that for him. This is also why I want to bring up Cass again for a second, because like in the car conversation that he's having with Dean, it feels like they're both doing something that they think is the right thing to do, like Dean going to Lisa and Cass going to heaven. But I'm just not sure that this is what either of them truly wants to do. And therefore, I'm not 100% sure that this is true self-actualization. There's moments where we think we've self-actualized, kind of like Dean did at the beginning of the episode when he first went to go face Lucifer with Sam. And then there's the moment where he really gets to become himself and truly reaches that pinnacle when he d goes to the cemetery. I feel like this is part of it also is just because one aspect of you is self-actualized is because you've reached this point in some part of your life doesn't mean the rest of your life magically falls into place exactly as you see it. You know, you may solve one thing. You may reach a point in your life where you're able to accept a facet of yourself it doesn't mean that every other facet's going to fall into line exactly, and that's what this is here. This is kind of a not sure what to do next because you feel like you've reached the end, when in reality there is still room to grow. So you kind of latch onto what feels like the proper next step. Do you have some thoughts about Sam? Well, Sam kind of has a very short run in this finale. Uh, I guess he doesn't really reach his truest self. Rather, he allows Lucifer to do that. And I really hope that's not Sam's peak. Like, I really hope this isn't Sam's self-actualization of like, I was meant to be the king of hell this whole time. Um, though, in another lens, this is Sam's realization of what destiny has had in store for him since he was literally a baby. You know, he was set up to be this and there. And here he is fulfilling it. The prophecy of becoming the vessel of Lucifer. So while I hate this for him... I guess he does, in a way, reach self-actualization in a really twisted way in sense of, like, accepting what everyone else made him out to be versus what he needed to be himself. So kind of a reverse self-actualization. Can I offer just a shift in perspective about Sam? Because for me, in this episode, like, Sam is finally able to regain control over his life and over his body. And... 
like, yes, it's through giving himself over to Lucifer and we can have a normative conversation about whether that's right or wrong. But this is literally the first time that Sam has full say over what to do with his life and his body. John's not telling him what to do. Dean's not telling him what to do. He's not being manipulated by Ruby. He's not high on demon blood. And he's not being guided and manipulated by demons planted by Lucifer and Azazel to like steer his life one way or another. This sacrifice was entirely Sam's choice. And I think that that's where his self-actualization comes from in this episode. And you're right that, oh my God, Sam's had freaking people pulling the strings in every direction every day of his life. My God, that poor thing. <laughs> but this is why we're seeing, especially in season five, Sam really attempting to regain control over his life and his body. And that's why we're seeing him eat the way he does. That's why we're seeing him, you know, make the choices that he makes. And this is truly like the ultimate way of deciding what happens to you and to your body. And so if we're just going to look also at a slightly different thing, like just for Dean, I feel that his self-actualization also comes from the change in his relationship with his brother. Because Sam is dying to save the world and to give Dean a chance at life. And in that moment, Sam, for the first time in his life, gets a chance to care for Dean in a way that Dean has cared for him for over 25 years. And I think that that shows that Sam has like finally been able to see the sacrifices that Dean has been making for him his entire life and was like, I want to be able to do this for you. Like the lessons that were taught in um, in this season, especially with seeing the boys as heaven and whatnot, have sunk in. It's sad this is what Sam ends on. Again, what happens that little last second before the credits, I don't know. But like in this moment, in what is seemingly Sam's end, it, while it's true that this is what he gets to it, he gets to do this himself this is truly a decision he is making all on his own you know it, we all kind of hope that when we self-actualize and we reach some sort of new pinnacle of our life or we've like evolved to a higher level of ourselves we hope it's something more and i guess saving the entire world kind of is more, but it's still kind of a sad ending for him. I mean, listen, to a certain degree, we all have to accept our own deaths at some point, right? And I also feel like Sam didn't just die on like some random vampire hunt by like complete accident, you know? Like that would make his death completely meaningless and painful and cruel. At least here, Sam was able to make some sense out of it and to decide to make the sacrifice for himself. The lesson to glean from this, the thing to really like understand is even in such a, even in such a dark moment, he was doing the right thing by his own merit. Jeff, some thoughts about Bobby. Oh, <laughs> no parent by blood or by choice should ever have to say goodbye to his children like this. Bobby has raised these two as an adoptive parent so well and so much of what he has taught them about being good to each other and listening to each other and most importantly, to not be idiots. And like any protective parent, he even swoops in at the end and sacrifices himself in an attempt to save his boys. And I'm not saying that's the role of any parent, but when you and your kids hunt demons for a living, it kind of makes a bit more sense. But this just to me feels like this to me feels like a thing John would never do. 
and I think while there's so much going on, it's just it's that it's like it's the it doesn't get the grandiose it deserves, and the fact that he's brought back almost immediately afterwards kind of makes it like not dulls it, but like doesn't give us a chance to discuss it. But the fact that he again goes into this knowing that there's no way out of this, this is a one way trip. None of them think they're coming out of this alive. And goes in and, like Cass, is like, hey, if I can give Dean even an extra second with Sam, maybe it'll be worth it. Because truly he has grown up with these two boys, treating them like the kids that they deserve to be treated as and love the way they deserve to be loved. And all he wants to do at the end of his days is to know that he did the right thing by them. I mean, just to break story time for half a second here, like, I think... In this particular case, it must have been tough to kind of be able to balance the ending that Kripke really wanted and still keep enough uh, storylines open to be able to continue with season six. And so I think that what you're talking about here, that tension between like the grand moment that you would have wished for Bobby versus like the loss of magic that kind of happened because he was brought back immediately. um, I think that's what you're seeing here. It's that tension between like, how do we get this to end, but still not end, you know, like it's, it's tough. True. It's very possible that this ending originally had it written that Bobby was not being brought back. Heck, even Cass. Heck, I could even see them bringing back Cass and not Bobby just to really drive Bobby's death home. uh, As sad as that would be, but I could see it being done that way. I also think that like the role of a parent is also to be able to let your children go when they're ready, like when it's time. And I think that that's exactly what happened here. You know, like Bobby in his parental role, let go of Sam when it was his choice and also let go of Dean when it was time for him to go. And I think that like for parents, that's literally as self-actualized as you can get. And I know I'm not a parent and you are, so I don't want to put myself in your shoes, but there is also the fact that it's something I've always heard parents say is you never stop being a parent. So as much as he can let them go and like, you know, they've grown up and left the nest, he is still their parent and he's still there for them. And I think that like that last moment is just so crucial to that. To me, those two things coexist. The fact that like your children need to go at one point and live their own life and be their own selves without you. And you will always be their parent. Like those two things to me coexist. Bobby exemplifies in his final in this whole episode, let alone his final moments. <sighs> Shall we address the elephant in the room? Ganesh was not in this episode. Different god. <laughs> Fuck Chuck. I still want to know, did he get what he wanted? You know, and all this thought of self-actualization and like reaching this new form, this new level, this new goal, you know, a new sufficientness. Did he get what he wanted? Was this him achieving some kind of final goal for himself? Or does this plan mean there's more to it? You know, it's really left up in the air. And I guess in this whole episode talking about, I mean, we're talking about such a final point. It's the end of a season. It's the end of an era. It was potentially the end of the show. But what was Chuck slash God trying to, because again, I still don't know for sure it's God. By all context, I'm assuming it is. But like, what was he getting out of this? Was this the ending he wanted? I've been taking a course on autobiography and self-study as a research method. And uh, I've been doing a lot of readings about how, like, what does the I and the self represent in autobiography? Like, who are we speaking for truly? 
because the question is like, was Chuck a prophet receiving messages from God and writing them down? Or was he actually writing Sam and Dean's stories? Where's the fiction and where's the nonfiction in this? Like, what was he trying to work out through this exercise? And did he achieve catharsis when he finished this story? I mean, it seemed like he did. There was something about his look when he disappeared that seemed like he had gotten what he wanted. So I can only assume he reached whatever point he was trying to reach. I guess we'll find out later, or maybe not. We don't know. Don't leave this one hanging. Please let me get back to this eventually. Even if it's not next season, just don't let me go ten more seasons wondering not to get something out of it. I absolutely love that that is like the biggest fear. Because we know that they do that. We know they do that. Also, just putting it out there, total random point as we finish up story time. They specify that Bobby is out hunting a Rougarou at the end of this episode. I'm convinced it's the Rougarou child from the other episode with the wife who ran away and had a baby. I think you have way too much faith in the continuity of this narrative. It just seems really weird to specify a Rougarou of all the creatures they could have specified. This was directed by Steve Boyum, and it was written by Eric Kripke and Eric Gewirtz. Hasn't Kripke directed the episodes he's usually really big on? Kripke has directed some episodes. Um, I was surprised to see that he didn't direct this one. Something that we don't really talk about all that often, but like the soundscaping of this episode was absolutely mind-blowing. Flashbacks can be a cheap tool sometimes, but here I feel like the way they handled flashbacks in conjunction with the sound design were just, oh, chef's kiss. Absolutely. And not to linger for too long, but uh, who's this other Eric? That's his only episode for Supernatural. Weird claim to fame. You you were the co-writer on what would have been the series finale. Mm. There you go. What's in the Hunter's Journal? Sometimes hunts lead you into terrible places. I did not think the general store of a small and no-name town was that bad until I got caught in some crossfire. One second I was trying to choose between two soda flavors, the next I'm on the ground as balls of fire and lightning are arcing over the aisles. I took a quick survey of the environment and noticed a few very freaked out bystanders huddled in fear in the neighboring aisles. I began a very stealthy crawl all along the grimy floors of this luckily quite small shop, gathering up all of the shoppers I could and directing them out to safety. As I gathered the last few people from the beer fridge in the back, I realized that it was going to be a bit tougher as one of our magic fleeing friends has been forced up towards the door. I got the couple from the fridge to the back door but saw that security bar and I knew that something that loud was not going to go unnoticed. So, did the only thing I could. I pushed the bigger looking guy of the two out the door, making him trip, and that pushed it open and his partner ran after him. As soon as they were clear, I grabbed the door and slammed it shut. Luckily, the alarm surprisingly did stop after that, but it wasn't the only thing that stopped. I could feel the eyes on me as I turned, and could now focus on the cause of all this commotion. All eyes were on me, and my hand was already reaching for my pistol. Sometimes, sometimes I wish I could just go shopping for soda, and not find myself like this, but who am I kidding? I know who I am. Who are you? <laughs> hey, Hunter's got a hunt. Hunter's got a hunt. And sometimes you gotta just do what you're meant to do and what you're good at. What would you have to share with us this week on such a momentous episode? Listen, if I'm being like entirely honest, 
this past week has been like really full of personal growth for me, which has been like really painful and really emotional. And I have nothing left to give to this episode at this moment. I have some thoughts about like memory and how it anchors us to like who we are, but I just, I really don't have the emotional capacity to put this into words at the moment. I also really resisted taking my notes for this episode because I, I kind of just like letting this episode be. I'm not sure how else to explain it because I feel like this episode is like full of possible different interpretations and like little nuggets that are really, really magical. I find that sometimes it loses some of that magic when we overthink it or when we really go deep into analysis. And I just didn't want to do that with this particular episode. So I'm intentionally leaving room for everybody to have their own thoughts here. Because sometimes I don't think that everything needs to be explained. I really understand where you're coming from with this one. And thank you for being so honest and vulnerable. This week, we have a message from Jana. Before we listen to it, we want to remind you to send us a three-minute voicemail. To respond to anything we discussed today, you can use the recording app on your phone and just email us the recording at carryingwayward at gmail.com. We also want to remind you that Drew and I are going to be answering the question, what do we think about Cass's final question to Dean? Namely, what would you rather have, peace or freedom? For our Roadhouse patrons and coffee supporters on our Impala Talk. Hi, Drew and Marie. It's Jana, and I am responding to your commentary on the episode On the Head of a Pin. I was especially interested, Drew, with regard to your segment on lore. You researched the name Alistair from the biblical perspective and said that you couldn't find anything about the name. But what surprised me was that you didn't look into history, because in history, there is a character who I would who I automatically associated with the character of Alistair in the show. And that is the English occultist Alistair Crowley, who lived at the turn of the 20th century and practiced ceremonial magic right through his death in 1947. Um, he founded the religion of Thelema and um, was also associated with the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn and associated with many other ceremonial magicians in this era. He is a fascinating character. And like I said, his that was the first association I had when I heard the name Alistair. And the re another reason is that for those who don't know much about occultism or ceremonial magic, the name Alistair Crowley conjures up visions of evil and darkness and mystery. And so I always assumed that Alistair the demon was named for Alistair Crowley. Those who are familiar with Supernatural will also recognize Alistair Crowley's last name as a name that shows up later in the series. And again, I'm pretty convinced that Alistair Crowley was the association being drawn up there. I wanted to respond also to um, the later discussion about learning our responses, learning our sexual responses to other people from sort of the American media playbook of how you respond to people that you're attracted to. When I heard this conversation, I felt seen immediately. I felt recognized because I have spent the better part of my life performatively as a cis straight girl, but I am bisexual and I have been the sort who has been attracted but never acted. And it's mainly because I didn't know how. 
I had no examples. I had no blueprints for how to express myself, how to approach another woman. I would often find myself attracted to someone and just not know what to do. And so when I heard this conversation talking about how Dean responds to people he finds attractive, whether we're talking about Cass or, or other, other characters in the show, it just rang so true for me. And so I want to thank you for that conversation because it, it was a, a wonderful idea to hear. And it's something that I've been thinking about ever since. Oh, what a beautiful message. Yeah, absolutely, Jenna. Thank you so, so very much for for this message. I, I was sort of familiar with Alistair Crowley, but not really. Um, I mean, I knew, but I wanted, I think I had already thought about talking about him more when it comes to Crowley. Thank you very much for like kind of creating this beautiful introduction this very well-rounded introduction to him and we'll be we'll make sure to kind of take that with us as we move forward and talk a little bit more about the historical person when it comes to Crowley yeah to echo what Mary just said first of all beautiful message uh but I'm now going to be stuck in a rabbit hole of looking up Aleister Crowley for the next several hours uh I know how I get with these things especially with occult figures like this but I feel like because you said the name and right away I was like, oh, I know that name. Why do I know that name? And I don't know why I know that name, but I do. <laughs> One, very excited to research it, so thank you. Two, we'll be very curious to see which aspects of the historical figure better align with Alistair versus Crowley. And finally, I'm now going to have a headcanon somehow that Crowley and Alistair are related in some way. Oh, they were lovers and they first met or some bullshit. There, there's something there. I'm sure about it. I'll, I'll come back with a theory on that one. But if we move into the second half of your voicemail, and again, I still bring this up in conversation so frequently with people when I talk about, like, growing up and not realizing you were queer. Uh, and, like, the moment when it hits you that, like, oh, right, there was no way, there was no blueprint. I think it's a perfect way to put it. There was no model or blueprint to base how to demonstrate affection or romantic inclination towards someone of the same sex because there wasn't any in media really i mean i think i said it then and i'll say it again now like the closest thing that tv had to being gay was will and grace and and again yeah like i still have moments where i like remember like a certain celebrity from my youth that i really liked and i have to have that moment of like was i a fan of them or was i more than a fan of them I'm so glad that you felt seen, first of all, Jenna, because honestly, like, that's awesome. Like, what makes queerness really challenging, I think, especially for those who, for many reasons, only start exploring that aspect of themselves later on in life, it's that we've been so incredibly conditioned to not do that and to not explore that, that it becomes really, really challenging to to imagine a world and to imagine ourselves again we were talking about self-actualization today and like how what does queerness look like to me and how do I want to express that without having to conform to the the societal norms that I'm receiving from hetero society but also even within the queer community right like I want to again like just slightly pushing back against like very established labels that end up just kind of putting people in a 
I'm going to say it again, but labels are very useful in terms of putting meanings and words when you don't have them. But I just don't think that they should be the be-all, end-all of who we are. Um, we can't contain people with labels. And I, I, it's always astounded me that within a community that literally its own reason for existing is to be different and to not be able to fit in the pre-made boxes that we put so much emphasis on these labels. You know, I, I don't love giving advice. Uh, what really matters is like, what do you think that should look like? What do you think showing affection to another woman should look like for you? And that's the right answer. And again, thank you for that advice at the end, because I do appreciate that for myself and for I'm sure thousands of people who hear this throughout time will be happy to hear those words as well. It's been a week of growth, I'm telling you. <laughs> Mine's very simple this week, if I can just jump right into it. Life is short. Enjoy it. I know it's a weird thing to pull this week, and you know I'm not faced with nearly as many life-threatening scenarios as uh, our lead boys are, but... Life is short and there are so many things that, you know, I want to do. I want to experience that I just want to be a part of. And, you know, we can keep telling ourselves like, oh, eventually or one day or next time or maybe just life is short. Take the jump. Do the fun thing. Do the thing you want to try. Experiment, explore, have fun. I'm saying these very vaguely, but they're all very much aimed at myself. And I just need to sometimes speak with myself in a weird second person just to make things easier to swallow. But. It's harder to speak, to give advice to ourselves than it is to give to others sometimes. That's one thing that I've had to learn in life, that a lot of the advice that I was giving out was advice that I should have been following. And so that's why now I don't really love giving advice because you never really know how that's going to be received and if that's even really a thing for that person in their life. Respect, respect it and preach it. Make the friendship bracelets. Take a moment and taste it. You've got no reason to be afraid. And yourself this week? This week has been like worldview shifting almost for me. Like I've been feeling called to self-actualize a lot in a very short amount of time. I can feel like I'm at a fork in the road, like a crossroads, if you will. Like I need to make a change. I need to integrate a change for me to like feel at peace again. And I just, I think that this episode being about an ending with a theme like self-actualization is just like reinforcing that for me. And it's making me feel called to feel confident in doing that. You've been listening to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast produced by Rochelle Castellano, hosted by Drew Shulman and myself, Marie Vigourou. Thank you to our Bunker patrons, Katira, L, and Jeremiah Thomas for their generous support. This week, we'd like to thank Jana for her message. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Hive, TikTok, and YouTube using at Carrying Wayward. And leave us a rating and review on your podcast service of choice. And don't forget to join our coffee or Patreon for perks and extra content. You can use the link in all of our social media bios or go directly to carryingwayward.com. Carry on our wayward friends. Mwah, mwah. I mean, uh, this was directed by Steve. <laughs> <laughs>